Well, a little later in our service, we're going to sing some more, and we will also partake of the Lord's Supper, communion, a little later in our service. But let's turn to God's Word first this morning. If you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. We'll be in a, a few different passages this morning, one of which is 1 Corinthians 5. Last Sunday, I began to share with you some things that the elders have been studying together over the last year or two. And some of the conclusions that we've started to draw and some of the small changes that will be implemented in in months ahead. I said last week that in some ways these changes that we're talking about are both minuscule and massive. Uh, We're simply talking about uh, starting in January, adding one mechanism to ascertain congregational affirmation on matters of membership and discipline. And that's a very small change. We, as elders, we used to assume your assent and affirmation when we made a decision regarding church discipline or um, adding to our membership. Uh, Going forward, we simply want to lead the church in its use of what we see in Matthew 16 called the keys of the kingdom for binding and loosing. And from another angle then, this is a a massive change because it means the keys are not in the hands of a few elders, but are in the hands of the whole church, elders included. We've become convinced of that, not out of pragmatic reasons or to redress some sort of problem in how we function together as a church, but simply from passages themselves, like Matthew 16 and 18, which we looked at last week, and some other passages that we'll look at this week. By the way, if you missed last week, uh, know that you're jumping into a part two, and I'll do a bit of review of what we talked about last week, but just a bit, and a lot will have to be assumed and so just know that. You go back and, if you would, listen to uh, last week's message on the, on the DSE app or on the web if you missed it last week. And then you might want to listen to this one again because they sort of build off each other. If you're visiting with us, you should know that this kind of message is a little unusual. We're usually working our way through a book of the Bible, just a passage after a passage at a time. Uh, In this passage, this morning's message, rather, will be in several different passages. It's what some would call a a topical sermon. And that reminds me that uh, Walt Kaiser, the longtime uh, president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston, he was often asked by his students if it's ever appropriate for a biblical pastor to preach a topical message. And he said, once every five years, but then immediately repent. (laughs) And I have a lot of sympathy with that. I think it's probably been at least 10 years since I've done this kind of a message. Uh, But bear with me, we're going to do it today because I think we need to. Uh, For all of us, let me briefly review what we saw last Sunday in Matthew 16 and 18. If you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 5, just keep it there. And you can look on the screens as I read from Matthew 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We saw last week that Matthew 16 is really important. Some have called it Jesus' charter for the church, laying out its foundation expectations and responsibilities. We saw last week it's built on Peter's profession that Jesus is the Christ. We saw that that building then leads to Jesus promising great things about him building his church and the gates of hell not prevailing against it. We saw the power of the keys last week, which open and close. They bind and they loose. And then we went to Matthew 18 last week to see how the people and procedures become involved in this exercise of the keys of the kingdom. So listen to Matthew 18 now. A related passage. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you, the church, as a Gentile and a tax collector or an an unbeliever. Truly, I say to you all, plural, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So here are the keys at work in Matthew 18. This is the work of binding and or loosing. And who are the keys given to in this passage? In Matthew 16, it's clear the keys were given to to Peter because of his foundational role in the building of the church. However, in Matthew 18, these keys are applied to the whole church, to any and every local assembly, even if one is as small as two or three people. So last week, we saw the combination of themes and we'll see it again this week with slightly different language but we we can see from Matthew 16 and 18 Jesus's presence we see his authority we see his help and guidance for what well to welcome people into the kingdom and to warn people who are not in the kingdom so this has to do with everything from preaching to church membership, uh, and also what we call church discipline. Let me clarify, as I did last week, that none of this precludes the leadership of elders in the process. But here's what's new to us. It seems that the church as a whole has a responsibility to bind and loose, to open and close heaven's gates, you could say, to to welcome and to warn, to admit and to bar. As we said last week, the church as a whole has the authority, the ability, and the assignment to together confess the what of the gospel, and the who of the gospel. 
What is the gospel? It has to do with Christ, Peter's confession. The, the who of the gospel? Who has it? Who doesn't? So this week we're going to look at passages which put this to work even further regarding the the who and the what of the gospel. We'll look at some passages which are really case studies for us. We'll have a case of unrepentance and removal in 1 Corinthians 5. Then we'll see another case of repentance and restoration in 2 Corinthians 2. We'll see a case of rejecting a false gospel in Galatians 1. And then we'll get to the Lord's Supper with a meal for repentance and remembrance from 1 Corinthians 11. So you can see we'll be all over the place today. And the first of those passages is the longest. And so that'll take us maybe half of our time this morning. Here it is. Number one, a case of unrepentance and removal. This is 1 Corinthians 5. Let's read the whole chapter together. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is a case of unrepentance and removal that's needed. Let me ask and answer five questions about this chapter. Here's the first question. What was the problem in the Corinthian church here? What was the problem? Well, you have the problem of one man's sin, ongoing sin. He is literally having his father's wife. So probably stepmom. uh, Probably something prolonged. Details aren't crystal clear, but this is sexual immorality. It would have been considered incest in their culture. It's of a kind not tolerated even among pagans, that is, among Corinthian pagans who were famous for debauched sexuality. This was shocking 
behavior to pagans, and a man in the church is fine with it and continues to do it. But there's a problem behind that problem. There's a bigger problem, and it's his unrepentance. It's not his sin per se. It's his unrepentance about the sin. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, show the man who's going astray, show him his fault. And if he repents, forgive him. It's settled. Forgive him. If there's repentance, it's settled. James 5 says, if someone wanders from the faith, well, then bring them back. God has a plan to bring wayward sinners back. Now, sometimes people ask, which sins are disciplinable? Which sins can sort of start the Matthew 18 process and see it through to its conclusion? A simple way to answer that is simply to say, only unrepentance. That's the sin for which Matthew 18 continues down its track. Repentance brings confrontation to completion. Repentance is the exit ramp, and it matters not which sin was the on-ramp, if it makes sense. But unrepentance is the road to nowhere good. And Christians can't continue for good to drive down that road. It just can't happen. Imagine King Saul and King David in your church today. Both are sinners. Both had moments of famous failure. At times, it'd be difficult to try to discern which one's the worst sinner. But what's the difference? One did not repent. Whenever he did repent, he blamed others. He excused it. He dismissed it. He minimized it. And the other repented, truly. We have beautiful psalms about that very repentance. So the problem behind the problem is unrepentance, but there's actually a problem behind the problem behind the problem. The biggest problem that Paul's writing about is the church's tolerance of this sin and this man's unrepentance. Notice that there's a web of sins going on, all of which factor into how Paul says to deal with this in just a bit. Notice this is scandalous sin. This is undisputed sin. This is clearly immoral and sinful. This isn't over a disputable matter like whether Christians can go see our movies, R-rated movies or not. Notice this is deliberate. The man did not slip on a banana peel and fall into sin. This was deliberate. It was public. It was reported all the way back to Paul. This was known. It was persistent, ongoing. It was unrepentant and persistently unrepentant, and it was tolerated by the church. And it's the last of those that is Paul's primary or biggest concern. It is sexual immorality. Notice verse 1, among you. It is tolerated, verse 1. And in this, he says, you are being arrogant, verse 2. May they even have celebrated that this was happening? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe from a, a misguided theological basis, sort of grace run amok. Look, look how full of grace we are here. This guy's doing that with his stepmom, and uh, we're okay with that. Grace, grace, grace. 
Or perhaps they, it was just a practical matter. Maybe this guy gave more to the church than others. Maybe he was well-known and well-liked, and, and who, who wants to step on his toes or make him mad or something like that? We don't know, but it was arrogant. That's the problem. Second question, what's the Corinthian church to do now? Well, verse 2, this man is to be removed. This is the final stage of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 said, let him be to you as a tax collector and a Gentile. That is, let him be to you what he seems to be acting like, a non-Christian. This is the loosing of Matthew 16 and 18. Notice the language isn't exactly the same, but all the same concepts are there. You see verse 4 of our passage? When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus with the power or authority of the Lord Jesus, they are to, well, verse 7, cleanse out is the word that's used. Or verse 5, Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? Well, in some ways, it means just what these other verbs mean. Like to put outside. To put the man outside is, in some ways, to hand him over to this world's ruler, Satan, since he's acting like he's of that realm, not of heaven's realm. Paul is saying... Let Satan have his way with him in hopes that in the end it will lead to his redemption. So this is loosing. You might wonder at this point, is 1 Corinthians 5 giving us a different protocol than Matthew 18? Or, or you might have wondered, did Paul skip some steps from Matthew 18 here and sort of microwave this? right to the end? Well, not really. You see, the sin was already public. It was reported among them. The sin was persistent, and the unrepentance had already been established. You don't need the two or three witnesses for Matthew 18, not that stage. It's past that. You don't need tell it to the church. It's past that. The whole church knows. In fact, they know all too well. And so this situation is simply at the last stage of Matthew 18. Remember that web of sins that's a factor, no doubt, in Paul bringing this matter to the final stage. It was scandalous sin, undisputed sin, deliberate sin, public sin, persistent sin, and persistently unrepentant. A third question, why is the Corinthian church to do this? What's the hope? What are the aims? Well, they're to remove the man, cleanse him out, remove him from membership for a watching world, for one. Because the church and the world both need to know that there is an in and an out. There is a heaven and a hell. There is a safe and there is a trouble zone. They need to make this clear because of the testimony of the gospel. Because sustained unrepentance is the clear earmark of the unsaved, the non-Christian. 
Repentance is the hallmark of the saved. That's how we got in. That's how we live. Martin Luther said, all of life for the Christian is to be one of repentance. And so it's really problematic when there is prolonged, persistent, and unbothered unrepentance. And so it's a loving thing then to discourage assurance in certain cases. For certain people, it's a loving thing to not encourage assurance. The hope, of course, is that the man might in the end be saved. Verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved. Now, perhaps he's already saved, and this is a bad year for this guy. Perhaps this process will actually painfully lead him to return to Christ and to come home like the prodigal son. Or perhaps he's not yet saved, and this process will actually expose that for him and maybe help him see that he's never begun to repent, and maybe for the first time he'll cling to Christ. Another why, another answer to that is it's for the purity of the church. You see in verse 6 and 7, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So, using this Passover metaphor, cleanse out the old leaven, like sin. Leaven, that you may be a new lump for the purity of the church. That's why you do it. Because, verse 7, because Christ is our Passover. Our Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. And that Passover lamb and his sacrifice means not just, not just salvation, but also sanctification. Not just the payment for sin, but also the beginning of purification from sin. And if nothing else, if there's no other reason to do this, it's because the Bible says to do it. And just because you haven't seen it work, or just because some people do it poorly, or just because you don't like it, doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Just because it doesn't seem like the right thing to do, or feel like the right thing to do, doesn't mean... We shouldn't do it. If nothing else, we do this because Jesus taught us this and we must obey it. A fourth question, what does it not mean? Verses 9 to 13 here, Paul talks for a while about some clarifications about what it doesn't mean. Does this mean, for one, that we just eject from the world, that we have nothing to do with sinners of any kind? Paul says, no, that's impossible. But when someone professes Christ calls themselves a brother, and for a while you help them with that assurance of being a brother, well, you must, verses 9 and 11 say, not associate. And then verse 11 uses this confusing phrase, at least to us, not even eat with such a one. Now this, on the one hand, may be referring to the Lord's Supper. That'd be the easiest way to interpret this. Or it may be talking about meals, but then you'd have to remember that in this culture, meals meant what much more than they do to us. Uh, eating a meal with someone else signified shared life, shared peace, shared relationship. It signified sameness. And so Christians eating together had a significance in a way that it doesn't for us. And, and eating with a non-Christian had some significance for uh, for them, that it doesn't for us. We can sort of balance this out with two principles that when we're talking about someone like this man in 1 Corinthians 5, once we get to that final stage, removal, cleanse out, 
We shouldn't interact with them in a way that communicates nothing's changed and all is well, but we shouldn't stop interacting with them. We shouldn't stop interacting with them. The goal is not them remaining lost, but being saved. Jesus said, let him be to you a tax collector and a Gentile. What do you do with tax collectors and Gentiles? You, you give them the gospel. You show them love. But as far as this person's identification with the church and the church's identification with this man, something has to change. Does that mean that this person now would be barred from ever stepping foot in a meeting of the church? I don't think so. The Bible in 1 Corinthians 14, among others, talks about unbelievers in the midst of a Christian worship service. But they shouldn't get the sense from us or from the church that we're saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. They should know of our concern. They should hear of our concern. They should feel something of our concern. It's, it's as if the church is an embassy of heaven. And we Christians are ambassadors in a foreign city representing heaven. And sometimes we as ambassadors in our embassy, we need to say to the foreign land in which we live, what is and is not heaven's position, and who and who is not heaven's representative. Sometimes we Christians will need to say to the foreign land, uh, we can't vouch for that one. I'm not sure he's a citizen. There's no evidence that he's one of us. We, we like him. We'd like him to join, actually. But we just want you to know uh, we don't think he represents our embassy. Now, who's to do this? Last question, who's to do this? The answer is the church. This letter written to the Corinthian church wasn't written to the Corinthian elders alone. It was written to the whole church, including their deacons and elders and all of their members. Matthew 18 says, tell it to the church and let him be to you, the church. Whatever you bind, whatever you, plural, bind, whatever you, plural, loose, you guys, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Who's to judge? The church, not just the elders, not just a spiritual crack team of church discipline investigators. No, the church is to judge who is and who is not their church. Again, as I said before, I said last week, I said it this week again already, I'll say it again, that does not preclude the leadership of the elders in the church discipline process. In fact, it doesn't mean that the elders don't lead in the process. I think that they do. Shepherds lead, overseers oversee, yes, but it says something that the church as a whole can be given the job description it's given in Matthew 18. And it's saying something remarkable here in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul can give these directions to the whole church. This church together was culpable for tolerating this sin, not just the elders, and together they were to remove or cleanse out or not associate with this man, not just the elders. Or in the words of Matthew 18, when the church 
in Corinth gathers together in Jesus' presence with his help and with his authority, they need to come to agree, that's the language in Matthew 18, that this situation required action and that a declaration needed to be made, that this man's sin was so public and persistent and undeniable and unrepentant that assurance couldn't be encouraged any longer. But the most loving thing to do for this man, the thing most glorifying to God would be to say, friend, you're not bearing the earmarks of Christianity, but you're bearing the earmarks of the world and the lost. Now, some have asked in the last week, have asked me and others in our church, how can I specifically, how can I be expected to be involved in a decision like that without knowing a whole lot more details than I would normally know about one of these kind of situations? That's a fair question, but there's an easy answer. What did the Corinthian Christians know about this man's sin? They knew it in just a few words. It was a headline. Had his father's wife. Or Paul's two words, sexual immorality. It's one word in the Greek. But anyway, that's a headline. What did Paul reference in this public letter to the church? He referenced the headline. Not gruesome details. Not unnecessary detail. It was enough that the sin was deliberate, that it was undeniable, that it was undebatable, and it was unrepented of. So under these kind of circumstances, any Christian can say with this headline and known unrepentance, yeah, that's, that's not a Christian. As far as I can tell, I mean, yeah, we need to revoke his assurance card. We need to say, we don't stamp that right now. You, you, we don't think that's of heaven, at least for now. Perhaps in time, it will prove that this man was a Christian and he finally did what Christians do, repent. Then praise the Lord, this whole process worked. Perhaps in time, this man will come to Jesus for forgiveness for the very first time. Then praise the Lord, this process worked. Perhaps in time, it will be more and more clear that this man professed Christ, but didn't really possess Christ. It wasn't the real deal. And praise the Lord, the process worked. Because it's a good thing to not comfort people on their way to hell. Let's go to our second case. It's in 2 Corinthians 2. Turn there. 2 Corinthians 2. As I said, the first will take our, most of our time. In 2 Corinthians 2, we have a case of repentance and restoration. Now there's repentance and restoration. 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 5. Now if anyone has caused pain, he, some mystery man, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, 
or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Here we have a case of repentance and needed restoration. Many have wondered whether the man in 2 Corinthians 2 is the same man we just read about in 1 Corinthians 5. Over the years, I've gone back and forth. Uh, here's how I feel today. Today, I would say it sure could be the same guy. I just recently read a, a fresh argument for that and was pretty convinced. However, it may not be the same guy and so the conclusion of the matter is it doesn't really matter. We have what we have in front of us regardless of whether it's the same guy in 1 Corinthians 5 or not. It would be a great, nice finish of the story. Here he's disciplined in 1 Corinthians 5 and apparently repents in 2 Corinthians 2 and needs to be restored to the church. But whoever this man is and whatever his sin was, it really doesn't matter. He apparently went through a church discipline process with this church and now needed to be restored by the church. The, the immature Corinthian church put the man out, cleansed him out, removed him. But when he repented, they didn't let him back in. It's what's called the punishment in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 2. That's just a, a different way of describing the, the loosing process of Matthew 16 and 18 or, or the treat him as a tax collector and Gentile in Matthew 18 or, or being removed in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, one thing that's unique about 2 Corinthians 2 is that word majority in verse 6. Do you notice that? There was a punishment by the majority. Do you know what that word in the Greek really means? It means majority. <laughs> yep, that's it. Or most. Uh, almost never is this word meaning the whole of something, but it means most of the whole of something, or the majority of a whole of something. And so most likely what this one word indicates is that this punishment, this removal was decided by a majority. Some, apparently, a minority did not assent to it. And by the way, wrongly so. But if there's a majority, there would seem to imply that there is also a minority so imagine that this is the man of 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul had given them instructions for the man's removal. And so the church assembled itself in the presence of Jesus, and with his help, they had to come to some sort of decision and declaration about this man and where he was spiritually. And it seems that they came to a conclusion together, not by the elders simply informing everyone about their decision, nor by the elders simply assuming that the whole church agreed with their decision and Paul's decision, but the church as a whole came to the decision to remove the man as a majority of them affirmed it. 
How did they ascertain what was or not was not a majority? I don't know. It could have been, you know, eyes and nays verbally. It could have been raising of hands for yes and raising of hands for no. We're not told, but there had to be some mechanism in place for ascertaining a majority. A unanimous decision is ideal, but a majority will do this side of heaven. A majority will have to do sometimes in an immature church like the one you have in Corinth. So you had people in this church apparently who voted against this man's removal and probably did so for very sinful reasons. Now that's really a side note. That's not Paul's point. Apparently, the man repented and now needs restoration. So you see verse 7 here, Paul says, now you need to forgive and comfort him. Now you need to, verse 8, reaffirm your love for him. In other words, receive him back into membership, reissue his church stamped assurance card. Let me pause here and ask you, how do you know that you're a Christian? Why do you think you're a Christian? And there are several different ways to answer that. You could say, because I trust in Jesus' blood and righteousness alone. That's it. Because nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You could say, I think I'm a Christian because I do see some genuine fruit. Not perfectly so. I wish it would be more so. But I see genuine fruit. Or you might say, I feel as though there's a sort of a, a spirit confirmation within me that tells me. And they're Bible verses for that. Here's one reason you might rightly conclude that you're a Christian. Because there's a group of people who you kind of almost live with, and they know you, and they know your sins, but they also know your repentance. And they, they stamp your card of assurance almost weekly. And sometimes they actually ask hard questions and, and and it gets a little tense, but, but we get through it. And we come out the other side with even greater comfort and assurance that we're his. So it looks like with this man, he should be assured and they should assure him. They should forgive and comfort him. They should reaffirm their love for him. And who needs to do this? The church. Again, a letter addressed to the Corinthian church, not, not just to elders or, or to deacons or to the leaders vaguely. It's written to a church. Yes, the elders will likely lead the way in the process of reaffirming the love for this man and re receiving him back into membership. Perhaps they will schedule the meeting. Perhaps they will lead out in logistics. Perhaps they will meet with this man before to understand that his repentance is real. Perhaps they will instruct the church on why Paul's word to them to receive this man is right and biblical. Perhaps they will also even confess their sin to the church, their sins of neglect, their, their failure to lead out on this matter, uh, not better than they did and not sooner than they did. But, but nevertheless, what are they going to do as a church? Will they reissue a card of assurance to the man? Will they begin to say to the foreign land, this man is with us. 
He represents the embassy of heaven. This man, for a time, we weren't, we weren't sure whether he was with us or not. We're not even sure what happened through that whole process yet. We, we, we can't be sure exactly whether he was saved and then finally repented or whether he never was saved but now for the first time has repented. It, does, it doesn't matter. He's with us now. We love him. We're with him. He's with us. There's a third case for us to consider in Galatians 1. Would you turn there? Galatians 1. Here, there's a case of rejecting a false gospel. Galatians 1. A case for rejecting a false gospel. Galatians 1, just a few verses, 6 through 9. I'm astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul and his representatives, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed." As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Remember, we've been talking this morning about the, the what and the who of the gospel, and mo mostly we've been talking about the who of the gospel. Who has it? Who doesn't? Galatians 1 is a passage where the who and the what come together quite nicely. So imagine this hypothetical. What if a false teacher comes to town and comes to your church with a different gospel? Will your church receive him, welcome him, call him brother? Well, no, you better not. What if this is one of your own pastors, though? What if one of your own pastors tries to take the church towards another gospel, tries to get the church to embrace a false gospel? Will the church go along with it? Well, hopefully not. Does the church either have to go along with it or find another church? That's one option. This is a bad church. I'm going to go to a different church. But where the whole church says, this is the gospel. We have the gospel. We've got that settled. We're still growing in our theology. There's still better ways of saying it than we do. But we got the gospel, and we can recognize that's not the gospel. And you're not welcome here. Not as a teacher. Not as a member. You see, even if the apostle Paul comes with another gospel. He's an apostle. That's over elder. If he comes with another gospel, you say, get the hell out of here. A curse, that's what it means. Even if an angel comes down, it's so hypothetically absurd. An angel comes down from heaven with another gospel, a false gospel, what do you say to him? Accursed. Yeah, there's no stamp here, man. Yeah, no, 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 that's not the gospel, and you are not a gospel confessor. 
Galatians 1, I think, shows the church handling the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, now this Galatian church was in the midst of going astray and, and, and playing with a false gospel, entertaining a false gospel of faith plus circumcision equals salvation. But Paul gets at the nuts and bolts here by telling them what would be ideal. Ideally, you're not embracing a false gospel when it comes to town. Instead, you are saying, that's accursed. That church has the authority, the ability, and the assignment to say what is and is not the gospel and who and who does not have it. Again, I say ideally this is led by the elders. They are the ones who would teach and train about the gospel. They would lead and explain in a process where a gospel confession needs to be made clear or someone needs to be shown to be outside of the gospel's parameters, yes. But the church as a whole has the right and responsibility to say that's not a true gospel confession. And friend, you're not a true gospel confessor. You need to be saved. So these passages have led the elders in recent months to conclude that when it comes to matters of membership and discipline, and those alone, this is not about voting on copiers or paint colors or anything like that. When it comes to matters of membership and discipline, or if we ever needed to add a section to our current statement of faith or take away language from our statement of faith. We, the elders, will lead in that process. We will instruct. We will try to teach from the Bible if we need to do either of those. But, but it will be all of us, the membership of Desert Springs, the collective whole who holds the keys and puts the keys to work to open and close, to declare to welcome, and to warn. In years past, we elders have let out uh, in that process and assumed you were with us. And going forward, starting in January, we want to have times where we get together and we get from you explicit affirmation that you too see that's the gospel, uh, that's not the gospel. Uh, that is consistent with the Christian life, that brother has no right to be calling himself a brother and we need to do something about it in love for him and for the glory of God and for the good of the church in the world. That change, I said, I said already, is minuscule and it's massive. As I said last week, some of these particulars of what this looks like haven't been decided yet. We said we would announce this to you now uh, in view of our elders Q&A, which is happening this Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., uh, we'll implement this by January. What it will probably look like is three to four times a year we have members meetings where this kind of business is done, where we present new members and we affirm them together, where when it does come up, hopefully rarely, when it does come up that someone is in these latter stages of uh, church discipline, we'll retell it to the church, and we together decide to um, recognize this person as a tax collector and a Gentile or just someone non, a non-Christian. Uh, we'll do that together in these members' meetings 
uh, likely after a Lord's Supper service, again, three to four times a year. So come with your questions to our elders Q&A. Uh, it'll be a good time. We want to welcome questions. We, we have nothing to hide. Uh, again, as I said last week, there's nothing behind this like a, a problem that needed fixing or uh, discontent that needed um, tweaking. It's simply a, a matter of working up from the Bible itself and trying to apply the Bible more consistently than we have in the past. Now lastly, a meal for repentance and remembrance. Where and how does a church confess the gospel? Well, we do that in the world, out in the workplace, and where we have opportunity with friends and family, we proclaim the gospel. We rehearse it and proclaim it together when we sing about it, as we've done this morning, speaking, singing of Jesus' friendship with us and what a Savior he is to us. The church confesses the gospel as the gospel is preached and as this meal is celebrated. The Lord gave us this meal to remember him by, to remember his life and his death. The bread reminds us of his life, his body broken for us. The wine illustrates his spilled blood for us. Hear how Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11. Here is the meal for repentance and remembrance. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is how a church proclaims the Lord's death. Yes, out in the world. Yes, in our songs. Yes, in rehearsing it with each other and to each other. And when we partake of this meal of remembrance. How, how does the church keep believing the gospel, we might ask? How does the church keep clinging to it? How do we as individuals keep at the gospel and not wander away like the man of 1 Corinthians 5? Well, we, again, we rehearse it to each other. We sing of it together weekly. We hear it preached when we come together. And at least once a month, we partake of this meal. This is how we keep on. So this morning, we walk ourselves down the well-worn paths of repentance and remembrance through the Lord's Supper. Here, we repent afresh. We remember that we have sinned, that we still need a Savior. And without him, we are doomed. But with him, we have every gift Every blessing in heaven is ours. He died in our place to bring us to God, and one day he will bring us all the way to God. Oh, how beautiful, how glorious is the gospel, and how blessed we are to have a meal which so vividly portrays for us where our hope lies. It lies outside of us. 
It lies in a broken body. It lies in spilled blood. All we can do is take it in. All we can do is receive it. We do nothing to earn it. This morning again, we walk ourselves down those well-worn paths of repentance and remembrance. If you're a if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you have good reason to think you're a Christian, we welcome you to partake of this today with us, whether you're a member here or not. If you're not a Christian, or if you think you're probably not a Christian, we would ask you to not partake of this meal. In just a bit, others are going to get up to one of these tables and they're going to partake. And if you would, just, just stay seated. We're glad you're with us. But know that this is something like a, a family crest is to that family. This is something like a wedding ring is for that marriage. This is for those who know that Jesus died on their behalf and their sins are covered in his blood. In just a bit, Drew will lead us in singing and we'll partake together while we're singing together. Just go to the closest table to you. There are three up front. There are four along the back. Go to one of those tables. They're at the table, if you would. Partake of the bread right there by yourself on your own. And if you would, take the cup with you. Don't partake yet. Take it back to your seat. And then once we all have the cup, I'll lead us in partaking of that together as a kind of symbol of what we share together and what we have in common. We have the blood of Christ in common. And praise the Lord for it. I'll pray for us right now, and then we'll... After that, after I pray, we'll take just a, a moment or two for quiet silence and examination to, on our own, privately talk to the Lord about our sin, about our need, about his grace, and about how kind and good he is. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, would you give faith, grant repentance where that's needed, give comfort and healing in broken hearts where that's needed? As we partake of this meal and remember once again that our hope lies in Jesus' blood and righteousness alone. That hope is outside us in the completed, finished work of Christ. And so we thank you that it is completed. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you said it is finished. We recognize this morning that we are sinners in need of mercy. And we thank you that you have given mercy which we've received simply because, simply by believing, simply by trusting, simply by clinging to what you have offered and what you promised. We thank you for it. Lord, grant us joy in partaking of this, this little meal as we remember you. Lord, would you restore the joy of our salvation where that's needed? May we stand in awe of what you've done for us. Would you help us even now as each of us privately talks to you on our own about about our sin, about our need, and about how good you are in your mercy toward us.